Thanks for joining us on the emdocs.net podcast. I'm Brett Long, and I'm joined by Manny Singh. Today we cover something dangerous, one pill can kill in kids. Pediatric patients made up 45% of the 2.6 million toxic exposure calls to U.S. poison control centers in 2017. Although most of these reports represent minor ingestions, there are at least eight different classes of substances that can lead to severe toxicity or even death with even small ingestions in children. The 2017 data from the American Association of Poison Control Centers reported 25 deaths in children less than 6 years of age. With the development of new pharmaceuticals and the expanded treatment indications for others, the availability of deadly drugs is only increasing. It is imperative for physicians to be familiar with the presenting signs and symptoms of potentially toxic ingestions in the pediatric population in order to be able to quickly initiate therapeutic and life-saving interventions. Why don't we take this medication by medication? Sure, let's do it. The first medication class is sulfonylureas, which include glipizide and glyburide. These medications inhibit the ATP-dependent potassium channels on pancreatic beta cells. Patients can present with a range of symptoms, including no symptoms at all, to overt coma and refractory hypoglycemia. For treatment, you need to give patients weight-based dextrose bolus, and if they presented within an hour of ingestion, activated charcoal. Patients who are symptomatic should receive octreotide, 4 to 5 micrograms per kilogram every 6 hours. In terms of observation, patients will need to be admitted for at least 24 hours for repeat blood sugar assessments. Next, we have calcium channel antagonists, and these include amlodipine and diltiazem. These block calcium entry through voltage-gated L-type cellular channels, leading to arterial smooth muscle relaxation, inhibition of the SNAV nodal depolarization, and decreased contractility. These patients are generally bradycardic and hypotensive and present with dizziness, seizures, or GI symptoms with some hyperglycemia or lactic acidosis on lab work. To treat these patients, you can try some IV fluids or even give some atropine, though usually it's ineffective. Calcium chloride is the next step, followed by vasopressors if needed. A pretty novel treatment is trying high-dose insulin at 0.5 to 1 unit per kilogram per hour with a dextrose strip. Those with ingestions greater than 0.3 mg per kg of amlodipine require a 6-hour observation in the ED. In regards to diltiazem, if it's the immediate release form, it requires a 6-hour observation compared to the extended release, which requires an 18-hour observation time. Toxic alcohols include isopropanol, methanol, and ethylene glycol. Isopropanol is metabolized to acetone and can cause respiratory depression, hypotension, hemorrhagic gastritis, and osmolar gap without anion gap. When it comes to methanol and ethylene glycol, these are extremely deadly toxic alcohols. Methanol is oxidized in the liver to formaldehyde and formic acid. Patients can present with abdominal pain, uptundation, visual loss, snow-filled vision, or in the delayed onset, an osmolar gap with anion gap metabolic acidosis. Ethylene glycol is oxidized to glycoaldehyde and glycolic acid which is then metabolized to oxalic acid. Patients can present with ultramental status, ataxia, tachycardia, tachypnea, circulatory loss, and QT prolongation. When it comes to therapy for both of these toxic alcohols, patients need fomepazole. Hemodialysis is also recommended for patients with visual impairment, profound acidosis, renal failure, or levels greater than 50 mg per deciliter. Don't forget the vitamin supplementation for these toxic alcohols. For methanol, give them folate, and for ethylene glycol, give them thiamine and pyridoxine. Next, we have our central alpha agonists, and we're specifically looking at clonidine. 
Clonidine acts as a central alpha-2 receptor agonist. These patients present with an opioid-like toxidrome and are often bradycardic, hypotensive, and apneic. Treating these patients, you can trial naloxone, but often you will have to treat refractory bradycardia with atropine and treat hypotension with IV fluids or pressors such as dopamine or levofed. These injections should be observed for at least 6 to 8 hours in the ED. Tricyclic antidepressants, or TCAs, include amitriptyline and nortriptyline. These medications can cause essentially mediated inhibition of biogenic amines, inhibition of histamine and muscarinic receptors, and blockage of fast voltage-gated sodium channels on cardiac myocytes. Patients can present with an anticholinergic toxidrome, cardiovascular collapse, a widened QRS with terminal R-wave and AVR, seizure, and coma. These patients should receive activated charcoal if they present within the appropriate time window, and most patients will need sodium bicarbonate bolus. Most of these patients will also need admission, but if they're asymptomatic for six hours, they might be appropriate for discharge. Next, let's look at salicylates, and these include aspirin and oil or wintergreen. These work by stimulating the medullary receptor centers of the brain and uncoupling oxidative phosphorylation, leading to a metabolic acidosis, increased pulmonary vascular permeability, and inhibition of gluconeogenesis. These patients may present with lethargy, diaphoresis, coma, seizures, cardiovascular collapse, or vomiting. Often patients are tachypneic and diaphoretic and may show hypoglycemia or metabolic acidosis on lab work. If the ingestion is early enough, you can give activated charcoal. Otherwise, you should aggressively rehydrate patients at a goal urine output of 2 to 3 cc's per kilogram per hour and alkalize urine with sodium bicarbonate boluses at 1 to 2 milliequivalents per kilogram for a goal urine pH of 7.5 to 8.5 and goal blood pH of 7.5 to 7.55. It's important to maintain blood glucose levels greater than 100 milligrams per deciliter. For levels greater than 80 to 100 milligrams per deciliter, consider early hemodialysis and discuss with your nephrologist. ED evaluation is required for those ingesting greater than 150 milligrams per kilogram of aspirin or more than a lick of oil or wintergreen. Opioids include methadone, oxycodone, fentanyl, and many others. These medications interact with the mu opioid receptors throughout the CNS, peripheral nervous system, and GI tract. Patients can present with dizziness, euphoria, depressed reflexes, altered mental status, lethargy or coma, dry mucous membranes, nausea and vomiting, bradycardia, bradypnea, bronchospasm, and meiosis. Patients who present with respiratory depression need naloxone, which might need to be repeated. Think about starting a continuous infusion if you've needed repeat boluses, starting at two-thirds the dose needed to reverse respiratory depression. If patients present within an hour of ingestion, you can consider activated charcoal. Patients who have recurrent respiratory depression after initial naloxone treatment require admission. Next, we have our local anesthetics, and we're specifically looking at benzoid and benzocaine. Benzoid is an anesthetic that affects the stretch receptors of the vagal afferent fibers in the bronchi, alveoli, and pleura, exhibiting its toxic effects through sodium channel blockade. These patients are tachycardic and hypotensive and can present with agitation, seizures, coma, ventricular dysrhythmias, or even cardiac arrest. Treatment is done by giving sodium bicarbonate boluses at 1 to 2 milliequivalents per kilogram with a goal pH of 7.45 to 7.55. Consider early lipid emulsion therapy with interlipids for patients with dysrhythmias or hypotension. The second anesthetic is benzocaine. 
and its metabolite oxidizes hemoglobin to methemoglobin, leading to the inability of hemoglobin to bind or transport oxygen. This leads to patients presenting with cyanosis, dysrhythmias, hypotension, altered mental status, seizures, nausea, and vomiting. Treat any symptomatic patient or those with methemoglobin levels greater than 30% with methylene blue at 1 mg per kilogram IV over 5 to 30 minutes. Children less than 3 months of age with G6PD deficiency may require exchange transfusion instead. After the methylene blue infusion, the patient should be observed for 8 hours. Antimalarials, our last class we're going to talk about, include chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. These medications block DNA and RNA synthesis. These patients can present with hypotension, hypokalemia, QRS prolongation, cardiac dysrhythmias, seizures, and coma. For recent ingestions, you can consider activated charcoal. Other patients should receive sodium bicarbonate bolus with a goal serum pH of 7.45 to 7.55. You can also give them diazepam and epinephrine infusions. These patients should undergo observation if they're asymptomatic for at least four hours. In summary, if you have a child that presents concerning for toxic ingestion, contact the Poison Control Center immediately. Identification of children with clinical toxidromes concerning for ingestion requires vigilance on the part of the physician at the bedside. Carefully question the family and caretakers, which can help you identify potential exposures and ingestions. If you have an exposure with a known time of ingestion in early presentation, consider activated charcoal for early decontamination in the asymptomatic patient who is protecting his or her airway. Many of these patients will need admission to the hospital. That was an awesome high-yield review, Britt. Well, that rounds out our summary of the key EM docs post. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, and stay tuned for our next episode. Feel free to comment on our site and let us know if you have any feedback. Stay safe and healthy, everyone. 